What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. See, here's the thing, Will. I've read Anna Karenina, but it's been a long time. I've never read War and Peace, though. Do you want to make the case? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 184. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, it's the best time of the year, summer reading season. For the past eight years now, I've put together a list of my top picks for great summer reads. This year, I'm emailing the 2019 Summer Reading Guide out to newsletter subscribers on Thursday, May 16th. If you are not already subscribed, you can still get the guide by going to modernmrsdarcy.com slash subscribe and entering your email address there. And if you want to hear more about the books I chose for this year's summer reading guide, tune in next week for our summer reading special, where I'll talk with What Should I Read Next producer Brenna and take your requests for what to read next this summer. Today's guest is Will Schwabe, reading devotee and host of the But That's Another Story podcast. Will believes if we all ask the question, what are you reading? More often, it could change the world and has a few literary superstitions that I found absolutely delightful. We're chatting all about the downside of conquering your to-be-read list, misremembering poetry, bookstore serendipity, and Will's attempt to convince me to read a super ambitious classic that I just haven't had the nerve to pick up yet. Let's get to it. Will, welcome to the show. Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, well, it is my pleasure. It's always wonderful to talk to a fellow book person. And your resume is particularly interesting. I'm looking forward to you answering all kinds of questions that I really am clueless about, like what in the world does an executive vice president at a publisher do? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> See, I know you as an author and a book podcaster, and I know what those things involve, but the the EVP... It's actually, I have a very simple job with with a um, very unsimple title. I'm essentially an editor at large. And Macmillan has all these wonderful imprints. They have Flatiron Books and St. Martin's Press and Henry Holt and Picador and Farrar Strauss and Giroux and Celadon. And I acquire and edit books for all the different imprints. So I think two-thirds of our audience just went, he is living the dream. 
It is a really, it's a really fun job. And one of the, the most fun things about it is because all of these imprints are so different, I get to do all different kinds of books. I have cookbooks coming up and every now and then a novel, but not many. And it really is just wonderful to um, be present from the inception, through the creation, through the publication of a book. How long have you been in that role, Will? Well, I've been in that role here uh, for about six years. Before that, I was an entrepreneur with a cooking website that I founded for about six years. And then for 20 years before that, I was an editor at a book publishing house. I was editor-in-chief of William Morrow, and then I was editor-in-chief of Hyperion Books. So all in all, I've been in publishing in some way, shape, or form for 30-plus years. Would anyone who knew you when you were, say— 10 years old, be surprised at the direction your life has taken? I think they would have been surprised that it, it took a turn in, into um, publishing specifically because I, for a long time, and it's funny, I, I just did an anecdote on my podcast about this. For a long time, I told everybody I wanted to be a painter. And then everybody and I made one really terrible discovery, which is I have no talent whatsoever <laughs> when it comes to painting. <laughs> So I had to jettison that dream. And then the next dream, I wanted to be uh, an actor. I actually, I'd gone through an astronaut period because it was the 60s and that's where the excitement was. But eventually then actor was the thing. But one of the things about acting is you you kind of need other people's permission to do it. After a while, I decided that that writing would be would be my bag. I don't remember specifically thinking, oh, I want to go into publishing. But there is one aspect of my personality, and I know it's one that you and I share, Anne, which really did mean publishing was the thing. And that's when I read a book that I love, everybody I know has to read it. I make them. (laughs) And to me, that's really what publishing is. Sometimes I joke with people about uh, that some readers are privateers. And that means when they read a book they love, they really don't want anyone else to read it. And some readers are publishers. And that means when you read a book, as I said, you you really want all your friends, strangers, you want to just grab people on the street and say, read this. And, and that's what being a publisher is. So have you ever accosted a person on the street with either a book recommendation or commentary on a book in their hand? My method is a little more subtle than, than outright um, – <laughs> aggression. My favorite question in the world, and I believe it's a question that can change society, lives, the world, is the simple question, what are you reading? And so whenever I meet someone anywhere, in a taxi, online at the deli, uh, next to me in an airplane, I'll say, what are you reading? And on the basis of what they're reading and what their interests are, I find myself recommending books to them. But also what's so great is I find them recommending books to me. Ooh. I imagine that there are many different ways you can take that question. Are you sometimes surprised by the direction people take the what are you reading question? I'm very surprised by the direction they take, but I'm also constantly impressed and inspired by the fact that we make all kinds of assumptions about people based on all kinds of extraneous information. And when you ask somebody, what are you reading? What you're really asking them is, who are you and who do you want to become? People surprise and amaze you. Some people are reading popular science and some people are reading science fiction and someone who you would never expect to be in love with romance novels is in love with romance novels. (laughs) And so it's really a way of of saying, like, tell me who you are. You know, I also, without judging, sometimes people say I'm not much of a reader. Sometimes I'll ask them, was there a book as a kid they loved? But sometimes I'll, you know, tell me something else. Do you like movies? Do you like sports? Where are you going on vacation? It's just a way of saying I am curious about you. Something that... 
I've said before, I'm sure I will say again, that I really enjoy about conversation about books is you would never sit down with a stranger, an acquaintance, sometimes even a good friend and say, tell me what's worrying you. Tell me what you dream about. Tell me what you think really matters in life. But books are a shortcut to talk about those things that really matter. They give you a way to approach the subjects that are really crucial in life. I I couldn't agree more. And and there's a book I wrote called The End of Your Life Book Club. And that was a book about the conversations I had with my mother when she was dying of pancreatic cancer. We talked about a lot of serious subjects, but there were some subjects that were just too painful to address head on. And books gave us a way to do that. And, And one of the most meaningful conversations we had was prompted by Crossing to Safety by Wallace Stegner, which is one of my favorite books I love of all that time. Is it's just magnificent. I was able to have this conversation with my mother where I said, and, and don't worry, there are no spoilers here for listeners <laughs> who haven't read it, because this all happens on the first couple of pages. You find out this woman But uh, Will and I are going to tell you you should read it immediately. Immediately. <laughs> So there's a woman named uh, Charity, and her husband, uh, is she's dying. Um, and I was able to talk with my mother about whether her husband would be okay after she died, meaning the characters, but really talking about would my father be okay after my mother died, which was too painful a subject to go to directly. But Wallace Stegner and those characters gave us a way of coming at it obliquely. Oh, now I'm remembering the beginning and ending to that book because it's a circle. Charity's husband. How poignant, Will. Yeah, it really was. And so I talk also sometimes about how I love the metaphor that books are bound, as in the pages are bound when you read them in print, but books and people are bound together too. Every book in my life is in some way connected with a person, a place, someone who gave it to me, someone I thought about when I was reading it, someone I gave it to. So that, so books and people become inextricably bound together. That's a beautiful metaphor. So it sounds like even though you did have your years of painterly and astronaut ambitions, uh, books have been a real constant in your life. Oh, books have been. I, I am that kid who was under the covers with the flashlight, reading late into the night. I was obsessed. I don't think anyone reads this author anymore, but Alistair MacLean. I was obsessed with Alistair MacLean. Um, I don't wrote, know Alistair MacLean. He was a monster bestseller when I was a kid, and he wrote these kind of hairy-chested adventures, and there was usually a band of brothers, um, symbolically, um, and they were off to fight the Nazis, and one of them was a traitor, and one of them would die d- during the thing, and and they were slightly formulaic, but just glorious. Um, the, the most famous ones were books like Force 10 from Navarone, The Guns of Navarone, Where Eagles Dare. They were all made into movies. So I read those obsessively. I was the Tolkien kid, so I raced through The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. I've always been a voracious reader, and I get panicky if I don't have a book by my side. Has that happened lately? No, I always travel with a book. (laughs) But I did start my most recent book, Books for Living, um, with a description of what I call the reader's nightmare. And this is a genuine nightmare that I have all too frequently. And in this nightmare— I'm about to board a plane for a flight to Perth, Australia, and I realize (sighs) I do not have a book. Um, And the nightmare is one of sheer panic as I run frantically through the airport looking for a bookstore. As this nightmare always ends, I can't find one. The flight is boarding. I wake up screaming. If that's not a bookworm bona fide, I don't know what is. Literal nightmares about not. And then I also have happy dreams where I I open a closet and discover that there's a private library in my apartment I never knew existed. (laughs) 
Oh, I'm a little jealous now. Um, I think back, and I talk about this a lot, too, about how incredibly lucky I was to have a parent, um, my mother, who read to us every night. You know, this wasn't, when I think back on that as much as I can remember, um, what I do remember is not so much the books, but the conversations we had about the books. And I think for book lovers, that really is part of it, is books are a way to connect with one another. I think to give that gift to a kid, whether it's your own or, or some other child in your life, the gift not just of reading a book, but of talking about a book is priceless. Now, Will, I'm assuming that since you work in books, you've been reading forever, that people assume that you've read everything. Yes, people assume I've read everything, but sometimes that's not entirely their fault. Sometimes I lead them to believe that maybe I've read a book that I haven't. Um, <laughs> you're having a conversation and someone will say something like, oh, yes, Anna Karenina. Oh, yeah, yeah, Anna Karenina, the train, blah, blah, blah. They come away with the impression that you have actually read Anna Karenina. But in fact, you just know something about it because everybody talks about it so much. And, and I bring that one up in particular because I love War and Peace. I talk about War and Peace a lot. So everybody assumed I read Anna Karenina and I did nothing to disabuse them of this. But in fact, I hadn't. And now I'm halfway through Anna Karenina. I totally love it. I actually, I love talking to you, Anne, but I'm also desperate to get back and see what happens next in Anna Karenina. <laughs> Are you a reading during the workday kind of person since you do work in Macmillan? That is my biggest reading regret is there is not one spare minute between the hours of nine and six to read. I emails and phone calls and meetings. So I read first thing in the morning. I set my alarm an hour early every day and I just lie in bed and I read for an hour. Then I, I read at night too, but uh, not during the day. Uh, what happened in Anna Karenina this morning? In Anna Karenina this morning, I, there's just been this traumatic horse race. Ended up with a, uh, I'm sorry, this is going to be very upsetting for everybody, but it's, it, who hasn't read it, and I won't spoil it too much, but with a horse being put down, and it's a devastating scene. That sounds vaguely familiar. See, here's the thing, Will. I've read Anna Karenina, but it's been a long time. I've never read War and Peace, though. Do you want to make the case? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. War and Peace really is the totality of society. There's everything there. David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest, how we stumble into war. There's Downton Abbey with upstairs and downstairs pl scenes played out. There's uh, romance, Natasha and Pierre, different theories about great men in history versus inexorable forces. And it is a page turner. After talking to a few What Should I Read Next guests who listed it as a favorite or mentioned that they'd finally read it and been glad, it has moved way on my priority list, but I haven't actually made it happen yet. I imagine you know how that goes. I do know how that goes. And I have one caution, and this may horrify you and your listeners, but I actually read War and Peace when I was a travel journalist, and I was on assignment to travel across Siberia by railway. I was reading it. And because I had to keep my luggage really light, I did something terrible, which was um, rip out pages and flush them down the toilet onto the tracks because <laughs> it's a big book. And in doing so, I ripped out and flushed out the list of characters with all of the various names they are called. Oh, I've been warned about this. I haven't been warned about flushing it down the toilet, but... Yeah, so don't do that. <laughs> I mean, don't do that anyways, but really don't do that. So I'll be helpless without my cheat sheet. You really need rereading the, and Anna Karenina, the cheat sheet comes in handy too. I do remember that. 
So, Will, I imagine that because of your, first of all, avid reader nature, and second, because you actually work in the industry, that you are acutely aware not only of what is being published, but what you're missing out on. How do you handle that so many books, so little time dilemma? I actually love and thrill to the so many books, so little time. And one of the peculiar things, I was going to say, if you come to my apartment, but when you come visit my husband and me in our apartment, um, you'll see we have a lot of bookshelves, like most people do. But our bookshelves are filled with books we have yet to read. There are very few books we've read on it. And I love that. I love waking up in the morning and looking at a wall of books and thinking, oh, I haven't read any of these. I have all of these ahead of me. <laughs> Adding books to my to-read list just gives me more reason to live, and I would be, it would be a terrible thing to read every book that you ever wanted to read. Every book I can add fills me with joy. One of my favorite lines is from Emily Dickinson, I Dwell in Possibility. I'm imagining you and your husband literally dwelling in the possibility of all those books awaiting you. Yes. And it's fun also to shop your bookshelf. (laughs) It's like going to a great indie bookstore and every book speaks to you. And this does speak to the fact that whenever I walk into a great indie bookstore, my eyes are bigger than my stomach. And I wind up buying all sorts of books. But also some of my all-time favorite books are from asking indie booksellers, what are you reading? Having them enthuse. And I almost always buy the books they tell me about. But in particular, My local indie, one of them is called Three Lives. Joyce at Three Lives just has me down. She, for example, told me about Mrs. Caliban by Rachel Ingalls. I never would have found that book otherwise. And I bought it because Joyce told me to. I put it on the shelf of books to read. And one day I shopped my, my bookshelf, found that, and was riveted by this extraordinary tale of a woman in a desperately unhappy marriage who has a passionate affair with a sea monster. <laughs> I did not see that coming. I do not know Mrs. Caliban. I do know Three Lives and went there with several of my children a couple years ago. And one of them commented, the the wisdom of grade schoolers, I've never seen so many books in so small a space and have it still be pretty. It's just one of those alchemic indie bookstores where the place, the staff, the books, they all come together perfectly curated, but just bursting with possibility. And the customers, because they're all forced together too, it's for me, it's the sort of <laughs> dream because everybody's saying, oh, oh, I read that, or you're going to love that. Or, you know, if you read that, also read this and giving each other recommendations. So it's community. Oh, I love that. Well, I'm very eager to get to the question that matters most to you which is, what are you reading? Are you ready to talk about your reading life? I, am I guess we've to, been talking about that. <laughs> I'm ready to talk more about my reading life. Readers, staying fit and healthy is simple, but it's not easy. The simple answer is working out consistently, but signing up for classes, putting it on my calendar, and getting out of the house on the regular all conspire to keep me from being consistent. OpenFit makes it easy to get fit. It's a brand new, super simple streaming service that allows you to work out from the comfort of your living room in as little as 10 minutes a day. So lose the commute to the gym and let the workouts come to you. OpenFit classes are led by some of the most effective and engaging trainers in the world. Sculpt your body with Andrea Rogers, founder of the worldwide sensation Extend Bar. Or get in crazy good shape with Hunter McIntyre, named by Sports Illustrated as one of the top 50 fittest athletes. These trainers know how to get your results quick. I've done the Extend Bar workouts and Andrea Rogers' combination of traditional bar routines with calorie-burning cardio are a butt kicker. These 30-minute workouts can be done without a bar, but not without breaking a sweat. 
Right now, during the OpenFit 30-Day Challenge, What Should I Read Next listeners get a special extended 30-day free trial membership to OpenFit when you text READ to 303030. You get full access to OpenFit, all the workouts and nutrition information totally free. Again, just text READ to 303030. Standard message and data rates may apply. Here on What Should I Read Next, you get to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what we're reading now. And then I have the (laughs) complicated task of putting books in your path that you may enjoy reading next, to borrow some of your own terminology. Great. How did you choose your favorite books to talk about today? Well, I chose, I have so many favorite books that it was really a struggle, but I wanted to choose books that were very different because all different kinds of books affect me. I'm not just a fiction reader or just a nonfiction reader or just a poetry reader. Books in really every genre have grabbed me at some point in my life. So I very purposefully chose three books that were in three very different genres. If it was easy to pick, I think you're talking on the wrong podcast to the wrong people. Because for book lovers, this is a torturous question. I'm so curious to hear what you chose to represent the different aspects of your reading life. Tell me about the first book. So the first book I'll talk about is Love Poems by Nikki Giovanni. Nikki Giovanni is a national treasure. She is one of America and the world's greatest poets. She bursts onto the scene as a young woman barely in her teens during the Black Power movement with, I believe her first book was Black Talk, Black Judgment, and has just pursued a career of writing powerful, angry, loving, lyrical poems about things that happen in society and philosophical poems. And she's just one of those poets who has always really spoken to me. And then years ago, and I was involved in this publication, she came out with a little book called Love Poems. It's just a perfect little book. Um, Some of them are about romantic love, and a couple of them are about erotic love, but one is about making an omelet, and some are angry, and some are joyful, and, and it's just this magical little volume that you can turn to again and again, the way people used to turn to um, the Book of Common Prayer, and you always find something new in Love Poems by Nikki Giovanni. So that's a book I keep by my bedside, and that's uh, that's one I would recommend to anyone. Can I read you a stanza from her poem, Love Is? Yes. I had to look it up because as a book lover, I remembered it a little bit incorrectly. Let me read it to you and then I'll tell you what I mean. Some people forget that love is tucking you in and kissing you goodnight, no matter how young or old you are. But I remembered it as some people forget that love is reading to you in your bed at night. Not quite the same thing, but that is also what love is. So when you were talking about your mother reading to you at night, I thought of this Nikki Giovanni poem. That's so wonderful. I love that that those two came together for you. I don't know for sure, but I think Nikki would uh, hardly approve of that um, misremembering. (laughs) I sure hope so. That's one. Another one I chose is The Importance of Living by Lin Yutang. Yes, tell me about this one. Lin Yutang was an author who burst onto the world stage in the late 30s. Lin was a, a very popular writer in China, befriended by Pearl Buck, the Nobel Prize laureate uh, for The Good Earth, among other books. He wrote in quick succession in the 30s two books explaining the Chinese way of life to the rest of the world. One was about the Chinese people and, and their history. And the second one, The Importance of Living, 
was about what he saw as the best things in the scholarly Chinese way of life. And he called it, and I love this, the noble art of leaving things undone. Lin Yutang was a great champion of poetry and reading and drinking tea and taking walks in nature and spending time with your friends. And the book is digressive and charming and and filled with all sorts of delightful things. One of my favorite things in it, his philosophy, he says, if you have spent a perfectly useless afternoon doing absolutely nothing, then you've mastered the art of living. It's really a book about life and enjoying life, but I will add in, there's one incredibly important thing to remember as you read this book, and he talks about it later in the book. He was writing it in the 30s, and he talks about the rise of Stalin and Hitler, and he talks about humanistic values like reading as being the antidote to everything that's wrong and evil in society, greed, aggression, and the grab for power. So it's really a book about what it means to be human in the face of a society that, that often wants to crush humans. So when you said, what are you reading is the most important question, that sounds very similar to me. It is. It's very similar. Again, when we're talking about books with one another, it's a humanistic endeavor. It's not totalitarian. It's individual. It's not mechanistic. It's creative. So we're really engaged, um, as Lin Yutang saw it, in something very, very important. Um, and he really was calling out in 1937, 1938, to watch out to protect these humanistic values. That's when I wrote my, my second book, uh, Books for Living. Um, that book is at the core of it, because that really is at the core, not just in my reading philosophy, but my life philosophy. Will, what put the Yutang in your path? As a kid, uh, I saw the movie Cabaret. And I kind of fell a little bit in love with Michael York, as many of us did, partially because I loved the movie and partially because I loved Michael York. Um, I decided to investigate the era. And that is based on stories by my actually favorite author, Christopher Isherwood, the Berlin stories. So I read a ton of Christopher Isherwood books, um, everything I could lay my hands on, which led me to read more and more about the 1930s. And then I discovered that the biggest bestselling author of the 1930s was Lin Yutang. So I had to read Lin Yutang and see what that was all about. And that's when I discovered the importance of living. So again, it's one of those things. I love serendipity, how a movie and an actor leads you to the source material, leads you to other books of the time, and leads you to a book that will be the most important book of your life or one of them. Yes. I think there really is something to finding the book that we need in the most unexpected ways and books appearing in your life almost at the moment it seems that you need them. Absolutely. The universe puts books in your path when you need them, but you you have to pay careful attention or you'll miss them. I love to talk about a library bookstore superstition I have, which is if you knock over a book in a library, you have to check it out. If you knock over a book in a bookstore, you have to buy it. <laughs> it's unbelievable how it works. I mean, that really is the universe putting a book in your path and you ignore it at your peril. And then the third book that I named when you asked me this wonderful question is A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara. And this is a novel set in contemporary times that traces four friends from college through adulthood. It's a book that that you race through just breathless to find what happens next. There's a lot of horrific abuse in the book that's chronicled. But for me, really, this is... Uh, the most powerful book about friendship that I've ever read. It, it's a book about friends. 
friends and family, what could be more important than that? Um, and Hanya Yanagahara engaged so beautifully with this topic, especially around the really tough part of it, which is when you have a friend who's not doing well, who, for whatever reason, is not getting better. The real depth of friendship when you realize that you need to stick by them no matter what. This has been a popular book on the podcast. So many readers love it. And so many readers are also hesitant to pick it up because of the abuse that you mentioned. But I love the way you described it as being about one of those friends that you have that doesn't get better. Because I think so many of us have one of those people in our lives. You know, especially the friends who are suffering, but as part of their suffering, um, push you away. It's not an easy question. These aren't, there's no quick answer I can give you. There's no, when they say this, you do that. And when they say that, you do this. Um, And I think that's one of the things that great novels do, great literature does. It's not a how-to book. It's it's not a self-help book, but it's a book that causes you to think much more deeply and profoundly about the responsibilities of friendships, the privileges of friendships, and how you move through the world. This is one I've been a little hesitant to read, as I've said before, but I do like the way you describe it. Um, it really will reward you. Um, and, and I know some people who've been hesitant to read it because it takes an unflinching look at um, the worst things that human beings can do to each other. But I also really believe, and this is something my, my mother taught me and I wrote about in the End of Your Life book club, part of being fully human is to engage with the worst things that we do to each other. A book that I almost named as one of these three, it was It's Impossible Task, as you say, is A Fine <laughs> Balance by Rohinton Mystery. Oh. It's a magnificent novel. And now, again, I've read that and thoroughly enjoyed it, although I understand why it's coming up in this context. At its heart, often a deeply, deeply upsetting book about cruelty. And it's also a book, and again, I'm not giving anything away, where evil is not punished. And good is not rewarded. People muddle on. They do the best they can. But if you're looking for the bad people to suffer, you're not going to find it in that book. And that's a, a lesson that's true to life. I think if we go through life with the expectation that good will always be rewarded and evil will always be punished, we will end up very disappointed indeed. I can't wait to hear you describe the book that was not for you. The book that was not for me was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. I don't really know why it wasn't for me, um, but I have a theory, which I'll explain to you. I was a, a, a Tolkien person, a hobbit and Lord of the Rings through and through. Most of the time when I'm in a, a room full of people and I, I feel like doing this little quiz, I say, <laughs> raise your hand if you're a Tolkien person and about half the room raises their hand. And then I say, raise your hand if you're a C.S. Lewis line, which in the wardrobe person, and about half the room raises their hand, and they're totally, they're different halves. And there's something about these two sagas that are almost like a personality test. At what point in your life did you read this? So I was racing through Tolkien, and my, my brother, who didn't much care for Tolkien, really loved C.S. Lewis and really loved The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So I kept trying to give it a try, and I would, it would be one of those books— I just abandoned halfway through so many times that I finally gave up. And I, I, to this day, I've never read more than half of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I imagine there are times when people hear that you didn't enjoy, haven't finished because you didn't want to, this classic that's beloved by so many and think, oh, how dare you? I'd love to hear you reflect a bit on how we are all drawn to different books for different reasons and that it is okay for someone to not think a book that you love and adore with all your heart and soul might not even be worth your time to finish. Well, there's a wonderful quote that I love from my guy, Lin Yu Tang, who I was talking about. <laughs> 
which is if you don't like a book, let other people read it. Easy enough. <laughs> and, and so if I didn't like it, I'm not stopping anyone else. But I also really believe that sometimes it's the right book, but not the right time. When I wrote about Crossing to Safety, one of the things I did write about is I had started that book a million times before I finally persevered and read it. There was something about the first 10 or 15 pages that just didn't grab me, and I kept starting it and putting it down. And I traveled with that book on so many flights that I used to joke that if books had frequent flyer programs, that one would have earned a first-class ticket to Tokyo. (laughs) Finally, when my mother, dying, said, you must read this book, I read it. And it was the right book at the right time. So it could well be that next year, five years from now, 10 years from now, on my deathbed, I will pick up The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and it will be the perfect book for me. That's interesting because so many people read that book as a kid. And yet I can see, had I tried to read Crossing to Safety at, say, 19 years old, I don't think I would have gotten very far. It seems like a book to me you need a little bit of life experience to grasp. I'm still waiting for Trollope. I know people love Trollope. <laughs> I'm going to do Trollope in my 60s. I'm in my 50s now, and I'm, I'm waiting for my 60s. And Will, we know what you're reading now. Yes, I'm reading. A, I'm, I'm well into Anna Karenina um, and absolutely loving it. So I'm very excited to have found the right time to read it. I've had it on my shelf, and something said to me, okay, now is the time for Anna. Well, I love how suddenly a book that never seemed important before just asserts itself in your life and demands to be read. And it's also interesting to me, too, how you can't judge an author by a book. I was talking about C.S. Lewis and how uh, Narnia didn't speak to me. But The Problem of Pain is an extraordinary book he wrote, which is a more philosophical, it's not a novel, it's, it's a work of nonfiction. And that book spoke to me very deeply. Um, and that's a book that I've read several times and think about a great deal. Yes, this is something that a recent guest, Holly, was saying, how she's learned not to give up on an author when she doesn't like one particular book because all books are not the same, even if they're coming from the same person. I think we have to be really careful of that in our critical establishment, too. I always sort of joke that, you know, I can imagine the conversation. If you imagine that Shakespeare was a book author and not a playwright, when like Troilus and Cressida came out. Would the critics have been like, oh, this Shakespeare guy's watched up, this Troilus and Cressida, he, we used to like him, but no more, you know. Sometimes writers, maybe some people of your listeners love Troilus and Cressida. To me, it's definitely not Shakespeare's strongest. But what I'm saying is sometimes writers need to write through a certain book to get to another book. And one of my favorite quotes from a, a passionate reader was I was talking about uh, the novelist Sidney Sheldon. I mean, I really like Sidney Sheldon. The books are so fun. And I said to her, what are you reading? And I said, she said, the new Sidney Sheldon. I said, this was ages ago when there was a new Sidney Sheldon. <laughs> I said, uh, do you like? And she said, you know, I haven't really liked his last four. And to me, that was so wonderful because she was a Sidney Sheldon reader and she was just going to read Sidney Sheldon after Sidney Sheldon after Sidney Sheldon until he again wrote a book she liked. Well, I admire her stick to And that is a good point. Something I feel is sad but true in the writing life is that Authors put their work out there, it's published, and then it lives forever. Yes. Regardless of how they feel about it afterwards. So yeah, all novels are not created equal. All right. Well, now it is my daunting task to see if I can just throw some titles in your path that you may enjoy reading next. And I'm so curious to hear your take. And before we hang up, I'm going to ask you to throw a couple of books in my path. Although I feel like I feel like you've done that a lot today. I have quite a list of notes going here in my fuchsia fine liner about titles I want to look up later. So you read eclectically, but many of the themes are the same. So we see a lot of love and friendship. We see a lot of issues that are very important. 
crucially important to us as humans. I also see how you like stories or nonfiction that turns the ordinary into the universal, that turns something personal into something that we can all relate to, even if we're talking about one individual or one family or one friendship. As we look for titles you may enjoy reading next, those are themes I'm going to keep in mind. Great. That sounds like you have me to a T. That sounds perfect. I know it's very true that no one has read everything, but of course, I'm a little nervous about that. But I have to ask, have you read The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay? I love The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. So I have indeed read that. And I approach it with a lot of trepidation because as a gay man who lived through the 70s and 80s and lost a lot of friends to AIDS and worked at Gay Men's Health Crisis starting in 1983, I approached it with trepidation and a good deal of skepticism, wondering if what she wrote would feel true. And I wrote her a little fan tweet, because I don't know her, to tell her how completely I felt she achieved her goal. And and um, it really brought back to me that awful, terrible time, but also brought back to me the fact that we did go on with our lives, that we had jobs and that we had friends. And, and I think that's something that so many other people writing about that time got wrong. Um, I love how her characters were going through this cataclysm that that we all went through, but also had to carry on with their lives. Um, so yeah, I, I love that book uh, and thought it was uh, brilliant. Well, I was especially interested in your personal take on it now that I know you have read it. What I was seeing is that it's a story about a really fierce friendship between people who are who are flawed because they're human. I also loved the fact that it incorporated that bit of the art world that I knew, now I know, uh, is of interest to you. Yes, the, the World War One, the art world stuff, and the, making the parallels between the artistic movements of World War One and, and the present is wonderful, and, and how the past is present in that art. And in some ways, too, in those passages, it reminded me of one of my favorite series of books, the um, Regeneration, I believe, trilogy or tetralogy by Pat Barker, um, which touches on World War One, or, or centers on World War One, But I thought uh, it was masterful. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm going to think of it a little bit differently now. Okay. I'm really hoping you haven't read what might be the best book I've read in months. Have you read the new Peter Heller, The River? No, I haven't. I'd love to hear about that. This is my first Peter Heller. And now I want to read everything he's written. Although, you know, not all works from all authors are necessarily for the same reader, but I'm excited to read more. This is a small book. It's small format. It's only 250 pages. It goes fast. When I started reading, I expected something contemplative and philosophical. And it is, but it is also a serious page turner. This is a story about two boys, college students, Dartmouth students, who are fierce friends, both avid outdoorsmen. One comes from a rancher's family in Colorado. The other comes from a more uh, sensitive artistic family in Vermont. And now they're taking this long planned canoe trip in Northern Canada. They're taking their boat down the river. This is not anything I know anything about. And I still found it fascinating. The story opens with the boys on the river and they're smelling smoke. What becomes clear is that this trip is a real survival challenge, might be putting it strongly, but they are doing something extremely difficult, even to experienced outdoorsmen, and there's a lot of risk involved. And that's before they realize that there's clearly what is a forest fire raging to the West, and they don't know how far away it is, but as the book opens, they're doing calculations like, oh, 
how fast can we go in this beat up canoe to get out of here to make it to the bay in time? Peter Heller neatly avoids one of the plagues of modern novelists when everybody has cell phones and can text and communicate. And you you don't have this mixed communication issue anymore because everybody has cell phones. Uh, they couldn't afford a satellite phone and they're in the middle of nowhere. And that made sense to me. And I liked how he resolved that. So you have man versus nature. But then as they're going down the river, they see this couple arguing on the banks of the river and they stop and they tell them, there's a forest fire. You all need to get moving. They've entered the middle of a marital spat, as they later find out, and this has serious consequences, which ends with basically an unhinged man seeking to make sure they don't make it out into the bay where they can tell everyone what's happened. As the story goes on, as they move up the river, things get worse and worse and worse for these boys, but you're cheering for them so hard. And the way Heller unfolds this, it's, I was not expecting psychological fiction, but oh, wow, this had my heart pounding. I didn't realize at the time, and I think this is a real testament to the power of the work. I am so not the target audience for this book. Heller writes for Outside Magazine. He used to be a travel journalist. He's an outdoorsy guy. I don't read a lot of that stuff, but I loved this book. Promptly handed it to my husband and said, you have got to read this next. You will love it. Which I think means that it's for all kinds of readers. And I want all kinds of readers to find it and not just the guys reading Outside Magazine. What's your experience with Heller? And how does that sound to you? It sounds amazing. Um, I have no experience with Peter. I'm aware of his work. And I think our paths may have even crossed. But I have never read him. And that sounds like my next book. I think you you found my next book. Well, I hope so. And I want to hear what you think about it, Will. To me, your your wonderful description of it calls a little to mind the kind of world of, of someone like Jack London, which was purely man against nature for the most part. But the idea of, of man against nature, man against man, or person against nature, person against person, sounds like a, an extraordinary uh, combination. So I really can't wait to read that. I'm excited to hear that. Okay, for this next one, I feel like I need to go a little bit obscure and forgotten so I can get something that you won't have read. What do you know about Maps for Lost Lovers by Nadim Aslam? I know nothing about it. Oh, okay. This is a 2005 novel. I like it for you because it's about love and friendship. It makes the very personal, very small, universal. It turns mundane events into events that are monumental, although only mundane in the sense that doesn't matter on a grand scale, but oh golly, it matters to these people. So this story is set in an insular community of Pakistani migrants in England. They've moved to this town. We never find out what the name of the town is. Aslam doesn't tell us, but they've given it a new Pakistani name that means the wilderness of loneliness or the desert of solitude. The story is about the interwoven lives of these immigrants and how if something happens to one of them, it affects everyone. This is a devout town. There are two lovers who break the Islamic law to live together. And when this happens, this devout religious community does not know how to handle it. The couple disappears. When the story opens, it's been five months since they disappeared. A theory has emerged that perhaps an honor killing was carried out. So what you see in this story is different people, most of whom are concerned about living rightly in the eyes of their fellow citizens and in the eyes of their religion. But they all have different interpretations of what that means, different measures of strictness and of grace and different opinions on what to do and what it means for them. It's intimate. It's complex. What I really like about it is Aslam makes all her characters 
sympathetic, even though they all disagree. And it's a quiet book, and yet it's so fraught with the tension that you would expect in a community going through what is really a prolonged crisis. Some critics think that it becomes a little didactic in places, the speeches that the author puts in the mouths of her characters. But the prose is so lovely in her descriptions of both the people and their emotions and also the natural world, which I didn't expect. So readable. She has such a way with words. You chose a book of poems as one of your favorites. I mean, I I think a way with words would be appreciated and that's reflected in your choices. How does this sound to you? Oh, it it sounds really marvelous. I'm so intrigued by it. I'm intrigued by your description of it, sort of the, the, the mystery at its core, but also this idea of community and about exploring this particular community. Um, and of course, you know, when you tell me that the language um, is really something, then I, I really want us to dive in uh, and hear this this voice that I haven't heard before. Will. Would you mind pulling a metaphorical book off the shelf and putting it in my path? What's something that you've read that you felt compelled to tell everyone you know, friends, strangers, colleagues, oh my gosh, you have to read this book. The metaphorical book that I would pull off the shelf, a new book, is actually a book that that I'm publishing. Um, And it's a book, The Moment of Lift by Melinda Gates. It is a book that shares the stories of women throughout the world using their voice and bringing attention to some of the most compelling issues of the time. It's a book where Melinda shares her own story for the first time, and it really is a book about how to save the world. In Melinda's eyes, that's a very simple thing, because when we lift up women, we lift up humanity, and actually the only thing we need to do to lift up women is to stop keeping them down. This urgent call for equality with the cry that equality can't wait, but it's got marvelous storytelling in it. It's just one of those books. I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to uh, point out a book that I edited and was involved with because it may <laughs> sound like self-dealing, um, but this is one that I really believe in. This is one I really want everyone to read. Never be embarrassed about a book you believe in. And Will, I'm glad you mentioned this because this wasn't a book that I had felt really compelled to read. I've seen it, but I think I dismissed it because of Melinda Gates being who she is as like a more businessy book, which it sounds as patently wrong. I loved Half the Sky, and it sounds like it's in that vein. Is that fair? Absolutely, positively. This is for readers of Half the Sky. Oh, perfect. Well, thank you so much for putting that in my path today. Will, it's been a pleasure talking books with you today. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Anne. I've loved, loved being on, on this show, your wonderful podcast and talking books with you. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Will and I'd love to hear what you think he should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 184 and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. You can find out more about Will's work from books to podcasts to speaking at willschwalbe.com. That's Will Schwalbe, S-C-H-W-A-L-B-E, willschwalbe.com and follow him on Twitter at Will S-C-H. Next week, I'll be joined by What Should I Read Next producer, Brenna Frederick, to recommend spectacular summer titles for you, our fabulous listeners. We collected your voicemails, emails, and comments over the past few weeks and can't wait to get your summer reading life off to a fantastic start. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you are on Twitter, let me know there, at Ann Bogle. That is Anne with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. 
Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. If you are not on the list, you can fix that now by visiting whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. We just wrapped up our first volume of One Great Book, my short form podcast where I take one standout selection off my personal bookshelf and tell you all about it in 10 minutes or less. I'll be taking a few weeks off, so if you haven't subscribed to One Great Book, now is the time to get caught up with the eight books in volume one. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>